Welcome to the Let's Eat Grandma to the Job Seekers Podcast. All right, welcome to the Let's Eat Grandma Job Seekers Podcast. We have an amazing episode, especially for professionals in the world of branding and marketing. Have you ever had a refreshing Coke Zero or sipped on a bottle of Evian on a hot day? Do you drink wine? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, there's a strong possibility you've been impacted by my next guest. As Ian J. Gallus, Director of Marketing for Premium Innovation, she's managed over $300 million, that's right, you heard me, $300 million in revenue for nine E&J Gallo wine brands. With over $4.7 billion in annual revenue, E&J Gallo is the largest producer of wine in the U.S. and in the world. She was behind the rise of Coke Zero, leading a $40 million advertising campaign. She's also worked with great brands like Disney and Evian. And today, she's here for you guys to share her story and inspire you on how to become successful in the world of brand marketing. Without further ado, here's Courtney O'Brien. Courtney, it's great to have you on here. And you know what? I'll jump right into it. Why did you choose marketing? Thanks. Uh, it's nice to be here. This is my first podcast. Um, I chose marketing. I was a career changer when I went back to business school to get my MBA. Uh, before business school, I had done consulting, management consulting, coming out of a liberal arts education. And I did that to try to decide what I wanted to do. And then I went back to business school and I was most interested in my brand management courses because it was a good blend of creativity and consumer empathy, which got into psychology, as well as the data analytics. So I'd say that's why I chose brand marketing to begin with. And I still find that to be the case. That's excellent. And um, yeah, we'll kind of launch into um, Disney here. If you can talk about your time at uh, Disney, because I saw that um, in your resume, uh, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, Disney is the first major company that kind of gave me a chance as a job uh, career changer. So I did my uh, summer internship there during my graduate degree uh, in their consumer products division. So it's how Disney transforms their licensed uh, properties. So I was working on 102 Dalmatians and the mm. film Atlantis, which never went big, but 102 Dalmatians did, into licensed merchandise um, and okay. marketing that merchandise. Because Disney doesn't really have a, a product you can hold on to other than their licensed merchandise. So we developed during my summer um, a huge fashion show that ran on the big big stage at New York Fashion Week um, that uh. used um, all the designers um, that were featured in that movie and got to meet Glenn Close and Joe Boxer and Betsy Johnson and all those folks. So that was a really exciting summer. Disney had a very big impact on me as, as a child, like I said, and Cartoon Network, but Disney was better in my opinion. Let's hope the executives don't hear that. So that's great. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Coke Zero. Um, is an excellent brand here. Um, so you were behind the rise of kind of that Coke Zero brand in 2006. If you can just tell the story about what that was like, that would be great. Yeah, so I was coming from working um, at Evian within the Coke building, um, and we can get into that later, but this was my first foray to working for the Coca-Cola company. At the time, I had the choice whether I was going to go onto the Sprite brand team or onto the non-existent Coca-Cola Zero brand team. Uh, it had just come over from the people who invented the brand, which is this innovation team, and I was the first member of the quote-unquote brand team to launch it and roll it out nationally. Um, we had no idea if it was going to be big or small. Coke, like uh -huh. any company, has a lot of things we throw out that flop. So most people that I talked to said, There's, you should not choose that. You're just going to be right in the uh, 
obituary for why it didn't work, most likely. Um, but it turned into one of the rides of my of my career. Um, it was under the radar because no one really knew how big it was going to be, and it was it was just a lot of fun. That's the type of environment that I thrive in. That's great. And, and so, could you talk about some of the the things that you did to help bring um, its popularity up? Um, definitely in the world of marketing. You know, we're talking about you know this won awards. I mean, this was just such a great all around product. But you know, what did you do to aid the growth of this brand? Yeah, and we were not challenged to become like the next mega brand of Coke or anything. So it was really interesting. We um, we just set our own goals. I remember setting up like this big ticker board in our area with every time we got an additional point of trial or tenth of a point of trial, we'd put it up in neon letters. So we were just kind of on a mission to change the world like ourselves, um, not from that much pressure, at least initially from senior leadership. So the biggest thing I did when I came on, I remember reading the launch deck that the innovation team had put together and yeah. I was nodding, I was nodding, I get it, I get why we developed the product, I get the proposition. And then I got to the target audience, and I was like, what? Their target audience originally had been against college-age guys. And the insight uh. was that, um, you know, obviously you're trying to get people to give up full-calorie soda to drink um, zero-calorie cola here. And I'm like, I don't know a single college-age guy that cares at all about their waistline at this point. <laughs> like, that is not the right life stage. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, they were going after, we were doing dartboards for frats and everything. It was just ridiculous. So um, I kind of put a full kibosh on the launch plan the second I started and said, I would like a couple months to reformulate a complete launch plan, and I'll come back to you. Um, so I got it, remarkably. That tells you how under the radar it was. And mm. it was probably April of that year, April of 2006 then. Um, four months into when it was supposed to have launched its launch campaign, obviously, um, and we launched, and it was going after a 25 to 34 year old guy with the consumer okay. insight that that's the life stage that you start to care, um, and you can't eat anything you want anymore, and you have to make some trade offs. Oh yeah, um, I'm starting we, to feel that now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we also changed the can to black. I don't know if you remember, it was white when it launched. Uh, because there was a very strong, uh, you can Google it, it was a very strongly really? held assumption that diet brands had to be white or silver, um, that no-calorie brands could not be, could not look fully loaded. Um, so that was flipped on its head, and that, I think, had a huge impact. I mean, it was, it was bold, um, and it was appealing to guys, obviously. And what we've learned sure. for sure that I applied throughout my career is if you build it for guys, the women will still be um, drawn to it. Um, okay. and vice versa is not necessarily true. Now it's totally acceptable because now it's a mainstream beverage. Back then, um, if you show up with like, you know, a, a zero calorie beverage, you would have gotten looked at very weird um, when it was first launched. So in a 2017 blog, uh, Coca-Cola said, we just broke the internet with the news that we're giving the beloved Coke Zero brand a new name, new look and delicious taste. Why do you think Coca-Cola did this? And what do you think will be the effect of the rebranding? Um, yeah, everyone who knows me knows my opinion on this, including all of my friends and coworkers who are still at Coke. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I don't have the data and I wasn't privy to the data and imperatives they used to make the decision to do this because I haven't been there for 10 years now. Um, I believe why they did it, which is something we were talking about even back in 08, is that um, no sugar or even uh, real 
sugar as opposed to high fructose corn syrup is obviously a big topic of conversation right now in the U.S. And it was even in 06, 07, and 08 in Europe already. And in Europe, they wanted to push the no sugar angle a lot more than the no calorie angle. And we disagreed because in the U.S. back then, it was very much still about calories. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I think we've definitely uh, evolved to a place that people are wanting to hear it doesn't have any sugar in it. So they changed it to Coke Zero Sugar. Um, so that in itself would have been fine, I guess. But I think the idea of reformulating it, and again, I don't know if they had any data that said they needed to reformulate it or if there was anything else behind it. But in my experience, when people love something and it's doing very well, yeah. they don't want you to make it, quote unquote, better. Um, unless you do baby steps like, you know, the iPhone or you know, Starbucks changes its logo very subtly every year. And you don't even notice it to keep it. I fresh. know. I don't notice. Right. Right. Um, but the wholesale change of the taste, especially of a cola, um, I-, I won't drink anything that's slightly different from my brand of choice of cola, which ironically is Diet Coke, not Coke Zero. Um, even if I go <laughs> so to Europe, I won't drink it because it tastes the hair different. Um, so yeah. I don't understand why that wholesale change was needed. I do know also that they were trying to and have been trying for years to make the Coke franchise more cohesive. So Diet Coke, Coke Zero, Coke Classic, um, the red, silver, and black, all looking like they're part of the same family. And it's all Coca-Cola, but this is your Coca-Cola. This is my Coca-Cola. This is his choice of Coca-Cola. So that's why they kind of all have the unifying um red now which is obviously what the brands uh stands for so that's i think what they were trying to do i don't know how successful it'll be we'll see excellent yeah they even mentioned it in this post they said you know we're giving the beloved coke zero so if they they hadn't mentioned if it wasn't beloved then then you know they wouldn't know how impactful it was so but yeah it's it's september 2018 we'll see what happens i'm already i'm already reading a lot of this is my opinion you know not courtney's by the way but a lot of people on blogs are you know mentioning how they're not necessarily happy with the change and um i'm not sure how i feel about that either so yeah whenever i see anyone drinking the new one you better believe i go up to them and ask them how they like it (laughs) (laughs) You like that Coke Zero Sugar? Yeah, I would. I would do the same thing. <laughs> so yeah, I want to um, pop backwards. You also worked with Danone, which owns Evian. Um, so my question to you is, um, what was it like marketing for Evian when Coke um, and Evian were partners? It was really interesting. Um, we had a master distribution agreement with Coke to distribute our products, but we also used we meaning Evian. We also used Pepsi. We also used Dr. Pepper. We used lots of different distributors. Um, so when Coke moved to become our exclusive distributor, obviously we had to wait till all of those other partnerships ran out till they could truly be our exclusive distributor. But they moved us to the Coca-Cola headquarters from California all the way across the country to Atlanta. Okay. We sat in a huge Coca-Cola headquarters building. But we were um, one little brand team, very lean. We didn't bring with us any of our... Um, support functions, because the idea was we'd get lean and we'd use Coke support functions. So we were kind of uh, an island in the sea, and we reported up through uh, France still, not to senior leadership in Atlanta. Although there was a team that was focused on helping us transition and kind of being our point people within the Coke organization. But if anyone's worked in brand management, you know you're fighting for share of mind with sales. Um, and it was even harder because we were, again, another step removed from all of the functions that we needed, such as access to the distributors and the sales force and 
our mm -hmm. audience um, and all the internal marketing was very difficult to get done. Um, our leadership didn't necessarily agree with Coke leadership on things. And globally, Danone and Coke are huge competitors. Um, when Coke entered the uh, water market with um, with Dasani and Pepsi did so too with Aquafina, it was actually uh, a breach of our contract. So with their distribution of Evian. So it wasn't necessarily smooth sailing. Um, okay. We kind of had to make our own inroads with um, with the Coke organization in order to be seen and heard and have any airtime at all. But it was very interesting. I, I learned an absolute ton through that period. I bet. And so now let's talk about ENJ Gala, which is your current company. Um, and I, I don't. I think a lot of people don't realize the magnitude of this, but ENJ. Gala produces so much wine. I mean, we're talking the largest uh, producer of wine in the world. Um, and we're talking, you know, I think the, the I was, you know, just checking the facts on the Internet, but four point seven billion dollars. Um, you can look it up um, was produced in a single year. That's incredible. So my question to you, Courtney, is, you know, when you have this company that's already established um, and already, you know, so big. How, as a brand marketer, do you contribute to that growth to make sure that it's continuing to be successful? I think I start small. I mean, obviously, Coca-Cola is a huge company, too. I didn't worry about that. I worried about my little piece of the pie. Um, and I really take an entrepreneurial viewpoint of it. So um, even within Gallo, um, I mean, what's really funny is I was and kind of still am a wine snob, and that's why I wanted to get into the wine industry. But I'm a, a marketing um proponent first and foremost. So being able to combine the two was a dream for me. But the first thing that they assigned me to was Bartles and James, Boone's, um, uh, Hornsby Cider, Andre Champagne. So, you know, my friends were making a lot of fun of me after getting all my wine degrees that that's what I went into in wine. But <laughs> anywho, they sell a I lot. Love it. They sell a lot of volume. But then I moved over to the premium wine division about nine months after that. So I just focus on my immediate challenge at hand, honestly, is how I approach things. So when I'm focused on my assigned portfolio, which has ranged from um, one brand when I was at Coke to like nine to 12 brands um, at Gallo, uh, depending on your scope of purview and what your portfolio is at the time, that's my baby. That's how I, that's how I look at it. That's my world, and that's what I'm focused on over-delivering and really breaking the rules in. And to the extent that I can influence the environment around me, whether that's my business unit or the broader marketing function or the broader company, that's great. But um, so I don't really get thrown off by the fact that it's such a big company that's so successful. Okay. And I want to talk about Apothic for a little bit. Uh, this is, by the way, just a great brand. It became, you know, number three in the premium plus category. And uh, I'll give you guys um, just a little background. At, at Premium Plus, I believe, is it's $10 and up. Okay, so um, it did so well. Uh, so my question is to you, you know, what did you do to grow that brand? Um, so this is another one that I, I didn't think it could happen again after Coke Zero, but it did. So I took over this brand. It was um, just about finishing the development of it from the previous team. They had made all the wine decisions already. They were just about to finalize the label. They would named it. Um, they didn't have a consumer launch plan, though, so I finished up the finalization of the product, and they did all of the launch planning, everything from kind of what's the positioning, what does the brand stand for, who's the desired audience, um, and how are we going to launch it. Um, and it was really a 
big change for the category. There were not, and it's hard to imagine now, but there were not black wine labels out there. This was really different. Um, and apparently okay. that's what I'm known for at this point is black, black things. Um, but it was Good. very, very different. It has a, um, a bright red A on it with a filigree that almost looks like the scarlet letter. It was not your white premium wine label with cursive writing and uh, a chateau behind it by any means. And we were going after millennials. And it was really the beginning of calling, calling them millennials. Um, it was when we tested the final labels, there was another label that actually did better overall than the one we chose. But when we looked at it, the one we chose had really high resonance with the younger group, like the under 45, which aren't the majority or haven't been in the past of wine category dollars. The over 45 group is. So, but it, this particular label did amazingly with the younger than 45 group. So we went back and we're like, okay, somebody's got to look into this real quick. Is the younger than 45 group driving the growth of the category? And what's amazing to me is we didn't know this. And it, it, you just take it so for granted now, but this was um, 2008. And okay. that was not a well-known fact back then. So we looked into it and we're like, oh my God, it is. It really is driving the growth of the category. And there was such high resonance with that group to this other label that we actually chose that we made a leap and went with that one. Um, so it was kind of a slightly smaller group, but with real passion, choosing that over um, more broad, but, but more tempered resonance with the other label. So then I think the next thing that we really did that was different is we put, we really leaned in on that consumer and on the insights. We didn't just half lean in on them. Um, and it was risky. And again, this is another example of a brand that no one expected to be huge. So we had the ability to do this. If we had the CEO breathing down our neck asking us when we were going to be two million cases, we probably wouldn't have made these choices. And I say that every day as we're trying to make these new brands um, with obviously huge growth targets. We have to pretend we don't have these huge growth targets because if we're trying to make something that's going to appeal to that many people, it's going to be too vanilla. And I think that's the biggest risk. Um, but we kind of did that without even knowing it back on a pod because we didn't have these huge growth targets. Red Blends was a really small category. Um, there was really only one major player, and we were going after a completely different consumer, millennials. Um, so what we did is every part of the marketing mix, first of all, we decided what we were going to spend our funds on. We did not have a ton of money, and you can spend your money on a million things. And we usually spread it like peanut butter across everything and try to do a little bit of everything. What we did here is we said we're going to lean in on three different things for Apothic. Um, we're going to lean in on social media, which was really new at the time um, in 08, beginning of 09, for a premium plus wine brand to be doing a lot on social media. Not only did we have a Facebook page, but we were doing all sorts of advertising. Um, we were starting to get into videos, and that's always been our one of our guiding posts that we still maintain is huge um, ownership in social media space. We even, we were the first wine brand ever to put a quote, consumer quotes from social media on our point of sale instead of like a Robert Parker quote. I remember Robert Parker had an amazing um, quote on Apothic that arguably propelled the brand for sure with the gatekeepers, the retailers. They started taking it seriously um, when Robert Parker said something, but we didn't put that on the on the um, case stacker. What we put on there was consumers quotes in quotation marks and then quoting like Sophie K from Facebook for example, um, and what she had to say about it, because our insight was that it's about word of mouth with millennials, um, and it's about hearing from your peers and peer reviews, much more so than whatever wine advocate is out there who you've never heard of. So we leaned in on social media. We leaned in on experiential 
So the wine was so different and so consumer friendly and unlike anything else out there that we wanted people to taste it. So we put a lot of dollars against events. We upgraded all of our events. We made them sensory experiences. Um, we did things in the dark. We had people smelling vanilla leaves. We used language that was very consumer friendly. It wasn't, you know, hints of pear and elderberry. It was, do you smell the vanilla? Doesn't it taste, you know, it was, it was words that people knew that they could relate to. Um, then the third thing we did was in-store. So instead of just a, a nice case card um, or a wine bin, which is all that was in the store at the time, it still is the majority, we did outlandish things on Apothec. We created this crazy mirror that was hand-carved in Russia, like a black um, Rococo type of mirror, and it was we called it the creepy mirror that was humongous. We created thrones um, in store. Um, we made huge statement pieces that you could see from across the store and really over-delivered on brand equity. And if it was today that we were doing that, people would be um, Instagramming it, right? It would be Instagrammable content. And that's still what we talk about doing now. Back then it wasn't happening, but it was the same type of stuff. People would take pictures of it. So we were choiceful with where we put our dollars, and that meant we could really make a dent in each of those three areas. And we really leaned in on millennial behavior, even though our sales force and our management didn't get it at all. Um, I remember presenting at a sales conference what we were going to do for the following year, and it was silent in the room with the 50-plus-year-old men and luckily, by that point, it was um, literally one of our sales VPs stood up and said, Courtney, I don't know what the hell you just said, but just keep doing it um, because it's working. So we really went right to the consumer. And that doesn't always work. You know, you really got to get sales on board, too. But when you're starting to have success, they don't want to mess with it. Um, and sometimes they recognize they're not the target consumer and they can't relate to it, but they're going to do it anyway. So that, I say, is in a nutshell what we did um, to make Apothic successful. Okay, excellent. And Courtney, I want to thank you so much uh, for so far giving kind of a backstory on some of the amazing um, points in your career. I think these are just such great brands, so we could not not talk about them. All right, so I want to move into the career advice portion of this podcast. So my question to you, Courtney, is what is the best way to break into a career in brand marketing? So um, by brand marketing, I'm kind of interpreting that, that we're talking about brand management, which is one type of marketing. Um, I'd really caution people who want to get into marketing for taking everything I'm about to say as a broad generalization about every type of marketing. Um, marketing is a broad term that can apply to a lot of different things. Um, my whole career has been in brand management, which is really the management of a brand in everything um, about it. And in business school, we talk about the four Ps. Everything about what goes into the product um, for wine, it's the wine, it's the package, it's the capsule, et cetera, um, where it gets distributed, what it's priced at, and what's your go-to-market and consumer promotion strategy. So every one of those, and some of them are fuzzy and some of them are quantitative. Um, so for getting into brand management, um, obviously an MBA is highly desirable, um, and getting experience prior to an MBA is necessity at this point. It even was when sure. I went back in 1999. Um, I think another really good um, real life experience to have prior to getting into marketing or as you're getting your MBA or before your MBA or even in lieu of your MBA for some of our marketers is uh, sales, doing some work in sales and not necessarily okay. like at the gap, but like sales, um, like for example, Gallo Sales. Gallo has an amazing um, Salesforce training program where you're literally calling on retailers. You're presenting the portfolio. You're hearing their feedback. You're learning how to pitch it. Um, you're, you're developing empathy and grit and perseverance. 
And that is um, at Gallo, um, the family makes all of their children who want to get into the business start with that. They believe in that um, fully. Um, so it's really an invaluable background to have as you're trying to get into marketing. Um, but I say also, um, also studying marketing. Um, if you're getting into brand management, you have to have a solid quantitative background, um, at least at the more junior levels, and you got to make it through the junior level to get to the more senior level. So sure. I, I use my high school math every day, put it that way. Okay. Well, you're five steps ahead of me then. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I still use my iPhone calculator <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that part out too <laughs> but, but it's it's that's awesome that's just amazing um but i mean i think that's a perfect segue into my next question and and i get so many professionals um i get resumes sent to me all the time that are from marketing professionals and a lot of them are you know beginning off in their career or kind of in the in the early to middle stages um so this is valuable advice for them and a perfect segue into my next question, which is, you know, what makes a good marketer? You know, if you're looking to hire somebody for your team at E&J Gallo, you know, who would you hire to be on your team? Um, and if you could just give, you know, some top traits, that would be great. Yeah. First of all, no spelling mistakes on your resume. That is a, that is an absolute, um, I don't even want to meet with the person. Um, so okay. definitely listen to Chris. Um, I would say um, a solid education. It can be specific in marketing, but doesn't have to be. We have a ton of people that come from a lot of other disciplines, and we love that. I think the most well-rounded teams are made up of you know, former engineers, former PR people. So we have a real diversity in people that we look at. Um, if you're coming in at the junior levels um, at Gallo, they don't insist on an MBA. Um, but a sales background okay. in lieu of that is very helpful. Some other companies like Coke do insist on MBA. They really only hire a postgraduate. Um, but Gallo lets you work your way up. I think what you obviously have to have um, the right bullet points on your resume. You have to have some marketing experience. You have to um, be able to talk to consumer empathy. So we always ask general questions like, um, What's your favorite campaign out there and why? Just It doesn't matter, obviously, what the answer is, but just to get to, do you have consumer empathy? Can you speak to a target consumer? Can you get rid of your uh, your own hang-ups and opinions and put yourself in the place of someone else and talk to why something's effective or not effective? Um, obviously, ability and comfort with quantitative, which is really hard to get across in an interview. You're kind of taking a leap of faith, but if you can quantify things on your resume and speak to it effectively, then that really helps instill confidence. Um, and then there's a lot of intangibles that we try to get that's hard in an interview. One of the oh, big yeah. ones, um, yeah. one of the big ones that we really uh, value a lot that makes you successful or not successful at Gallo is grit. We call it grit. We even have a, um, a guide called How to Hire for Grit. Um, and it's really about the um, rolling up your sleeves, doing what needs to be done, perseverance, and ability to show examples and a track record of doing that. Because even though Gallo is a huge company, it's still very scrappy. We consider ourselves very scrappy. Um, each individual team is pretty lean. Um, our budgets are very low compared to beer, spirits, and certainly soft drinks. Um, probably on the high end of the wine industry, but that doesn't hold a candle to how much the others spend. So we um, we really pride ourselves on people that are willing to roll up their sleeves and do what needs to be done um, rather than just what they're asked to do. Um, determination, um, a huge thing for Gallo is humility. So um, 
that's really a big thing. So when we hire from other big marketing companies, that's something we really look for because there's a lot of people I've run into at other big marketing companies that are not exactly humble. Um, and okay. that doesn't fly um, for a family-run business at Gallo where that is core to their uh, family DNA. Gallo doesn't have signs on their buildings, literally. There are no signs on any of the buildings um, around town. Um, it, it's very difficult. We have wanted to use a lot of the things that Gallo has been doing throughout the generations as marketing points for various brands over the years because I think if they knew people knew about them, they would eat it up. So, for example, they've been doing since the days of Julio Gallo, who passed away in the 90s, something called the 50-50 Give Back Program, which means for every acre of um, land we plant to vines, we leave an acre untouched um, for the natural habitat. And he didn't do it because wow. it was cool um, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. He did it because, it, mm. he, according to him, it was the right thing to do for long-term land stewardship. Um, and so, sure. I mean, how much do people eat that up nowadays? But oh, yeah. we are basically not allowed to talk about it as marketers because of the – um, it's just something that the family does, and they don't want awards for it, and they don't want to brag about it. And so there's countless examples like that. Um, and we look for that kind of approach in how people approach things, too. We don't need any braggarts and people who think they're better than the other people around them um, and one-man shows around here. That's a great philosophy. And I hope anyone, like it doesn't matter if you're in marketing or you are the CEO, founder of a startup, like that's great advice to live by. And I think just a great all around principle. So my question to you now is what is the biggest thing you wish you knew in your career that would have helped the younger you overcome major obstacles? I think the biggest thing I've evolved um, as a marketer, especially is to not be a bulldozer. So I am an A-type personality I am from New York, um, so I can relate to the Northeasterners that are often accused of being pushy, um, especially <laughs> living in California. Um, and I used to definitely be a bulldozer earlier in my career. You know, I was going to get that goal accomplished, come hell or high water, and get out of my way if you're not on board. Uh, I didn't realize that I was doing that, but I made um, some enemies in the process that I think in the end became friends. Um but I've definitely gotten a lot better at that. And I think it's still a really delicate balance between having high standards and doing what needs to be done for your business and making the calls, being decisive in making the calls, not just pitter-pattering around it and kind of letting it just hang out there um, while not pissing people off. Um, so if you're supposed to work with certain um, internal departments, for example, on something, but you don't feel like you're getting the best work. Do you make the call and go external, um, even though you might, it, it's hard to do it gently um, with the internal people that you're going to see every day. But, you know, on a, on a very fast track uh, business and something that has to get launched in nine months with a strong campaign, um, can't wait around for the best work forever. So that's just an example right. of um, tough decisions and the finesse that's required in interpersonal relationships to be effective, especially at a family-run business, but even at a, a at any company, I think, while getting the best work you can. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. And so you you even mentioned it. So like you have this campaign, you have to get it out in nine months, or you just have a whole bunch of different tasks to accomplish, kind of in your career. So I can imagine it's 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 a lot. It's not easy. So my question to you would be, you know, what's the best way to avoid career burnout in marketing, so we can try to prevent that as much as possible. Yeah, and I've known like 
I think two or three people that had major uh, like breakdowns in my career and left sure. and, and did something totally different, even at a senior level. Um, and that hasn't happened to me, and I don't feel like it's going to happen imminently, which is kind of amazing. Um, I've always been the person that leaves when I need to leave. Um, I guess I never felt that um, need to show FaceTime, and that's probably a credit to the companies that I worked for and the culture, but I was always on the early side to leave, whether or not I had kids. And now I have three kids, but, but you know, I haven't um, up until seven years ago. But I had to leave to go do yoga. I had to leave to go to the gym. And now I have to leave to pick up the kids. Mm. And, and I'll get back on if I need to Preach. later at night, but – I need that balance, and that is um, what I'm constantly telling people who work for me. It's the first thing I tell people when they come to work on my team is I need you to be here for the long run. It doesn't do me any good for you to kill yourself in the short run and then get burned out and leave. Um, and what you need is going to be different than what I need, so you just need to tell me. Um, like I have someone who, uh, who lives an hour and a half away, and she comes to the office most days of the week. But – I don't need her to feel like she has to come when um, she doesn't really need to in order to impress me and then get burned out sooner. Like I need people to make the call of what they need and what they're willing to do and we'll work with it rather than um, giving their all and burning out quicker. So I think it's just looking at it as a long-term marathon and finding balance in yeah. it every day. That's a great response. And, um, you know, some accountability does go on the employer and the company to make sure that you are, you are, um, how do you say, get, you know, showcasing a culture that isn't, you know, toxic. It's not like you're really driving your employees to the ground. So I think on one end, that's important, but also to remember that on the receiving end, there are a lot of action steps that you can take, um, to make sure that you're not, yeah, driving yourself to the ground. So, yeah. And as a job seeker too, I think it's one of my biggest concerns when I even crosses my mind about looking for a new job ever is, will I be able to forge the um, path that works for me that I have at fill in the blank company that I've worked for for a while and have established um, kind of a, a legitimacy at um, with a yeah. new employer? Because of course, they'll tell you during the interview process, yes, we have great work life balance. But I think it's you need to talk to the employees. Um, and now you got glassdoor.com and all sorts of places that you can do research on the reality and see if it would work for you. That's a great word of advice, similar, but maybe not so related. Like I remember hearing things about an apartment, you know, you don't ask the leasing agents, you know, what their opinion is on the apartment. You ask, you know, some of the residents, you know, what their experiences are. So I just think that's, that's great advice for job seekers as well. So Great. So, um, Courtney, your answers have been absolutely incredible. I think really good advice, uh, for the people who are within brand management, marketing, what so have it. So I want to kind of ask, um, kind of tie this all together. You know, do you have any final words of advice for marketing professionals or professionals in brand management? Yeah, I, I think that don't if you try one kind of marketing and don't like it, don't assume that you're not going to like all different kinds of marketing. My only experience has been with brand management, which is a very quantitative, um, intensive style of marketing. Um, it's more towards general management. It's like being an entrepreneur of a little business, whatever your business is. You've got to do all aspects mm -hmm. of it. And where people go from brand management, sometimes they go to be general managers uh, of a company 
a lot of our companies, um, general managers over the years from different companies have come from brand. But um, a lot of other people decide that I'd rather stay in, on the marketing side. I'd rather be the CMO someday than the general manager um, because I like all aspects of marketing better than I want to manage a plant, for example. So I think when you try different styles in different companies, even brand management across the big companies out there, the General Mills, Procter & Gamble's, Coke, Pepsi, et cetera, are not the same at all. They're not created equal. A lot of them are more structured than others, and your personality might work better with some rather than others. So do a lot of research and think about what type you want to get into and ask people right. and call around and network. And then don't assume that you hate marketing um, if you don't like the first try. Right, exactly. I always tell people, be targeted, you know, be as targeted as possible. And that does help with your job search. And you know, I'm no career coach. I'm just a resume writer, but I know it works and I know it helps. So, you know, there are many different types of marketing. And so, yes, find the one that's right for you. And um, that can take you far. Yeah. So this is great. Um, Courtney, once again, thanks for joining us on this podcast. And for everyone listening right now, I'm going to post... Courtney O'Brien's LinkedIn below. So you can see kind of her career progression and how she was able to move forward with her career. Um, it's really an incredible story. And I think LinkedIn is LinkedIn is where it's at. It's They're better than resumes, in my opinion, because you can get more of a well-rounded, in-depth um, view about somebody's professional history. So that's going to be posted in the link below. So once again, Courtney, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on the LEG, that's Let's Eat Grandma Job Seekers podcast, and we'll be in touch. Thank you.